Changing gears a bit, if you can take your Bible now and, and meet me in Genesis chapter 12. Obviously, uh, a few weeks ago, I shared with you my desire to bring a 12-part, 12-week summer series um, that would take us through, walk us through the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation so that we could begin to see uh, the story of Scripture in its entirety rather than in small bits and pieces that we've collected through the course of our lives. But obviously, the best laid plans don't always come to fruition. So today, week three, will be our third and final week in this uh, series. And, uh, and yet I think in God's providence, it absolutely speaks to our situation today, both individually and collectively as a church. I want to begin, though, with uh, a series of questions just to get you thinking along certain themes today. So you can be, I want to go kind of intentionally slow so that these questions can sink in and it gives you time to think through them. No need to respond aloud, but I just want you to think through these questions. And by the way, I also want to give the heads up that we, we have a lot of material to cover, and it, but it's all interrelated. So we're going to be in three different chapters today, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, as we look at the story of Abraham. And so uh, just, just a, you know, a bit of a, a heads up that, that it may be feel a little bit longer than normal, but it's going to be, I'm confident that God has a, a message for us. So some questions to get you thinking. How do you deal like, how do you deal with uncertainty? How do you deal with a lack of tangible, knowable security? How do you deal with a lack of control? With situations in which you have little to no control? How do you deal with doubt? With the unexpected? With unmet expectations? How do you deal with the issue of identity? Your identity? And from where do you derive your identity? What are you looking to? Who are you looking to to give you a sense of identity? What identifies you as a person of faith if, in fact, you are such a person? These questions, and there are many more like them, they provide the background to the passages of Scripture before us today as we come to the story of Abraham. Understanding Abraham's story is critical to understanding the biblical narrative because, as some of you know, Abraham is known as the father of faith. Many of you probably grew up singing the song, Father Abraham, in Sunday school. I did my best attempt at a rendition on the sermon preview this week. How many of you know that song, Father Abraham? Now, why is that song so well known? Why do we sing about Abraham? Why do we call him Father? And what's up with all these sons and daughters of his? And how do you and I become one of them? That's what we're going to consider today, beginning here in Genesis 12. But to better appreciate Abraham's story, first we need to understand the gist of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. These chapters describe the fall as humanity turned from God and the perpetual falling into 
in uh, increasing degrees of rebellious and destructive autonomy as sin took hold of the human heart. Now, time won't allow us to unpack these chapters, chapters 3 through 11 today, but it's important that we see the arrival of Abraham onto the stage of human history against the backdrop of human wickedness and depravity. Uh, because beginning with the call of Abraham, God set in motion a rescue plan to save those who place their faith in him. For just as God called Abraham into covenant relationship, so he calls and covenants with us even today. I want to read it for you, just a few verses here in Genesis 12. And we'll pick up in 15 and 17 later on. But Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, at least the first part of 4. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time this morning. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for this person, this, this man Abraham that we now know as the father of faith. And I pray that our moments together, considering his story, or at least parts of it, I pray that you would use that to encourage our faith today that you would impress, your, impress, impress yourself and your character and all of your trustworthiness, impress it upon our lives and upon our hearts that we might walk with you even as Abram did so long ago. And for these things, we need your help. So we invite you and ask you to come do that in our lives and in our hearts, that which only you can do, and help us to respond well. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now imagine with me for a moment this scenario in which you are asked to leave behind everything you know. Not just your home, but your entire homeland. Your community, your sense of belonging, your family, and the source of strength and family, uh, strength and stability that family can provide, your security, both relational, your financial security, your friends and the friendships you share, all that is familiar to do, all, all that is familiar to you, imagine leaving it all behind, not for a day or two or even a year or two, but leaving it indefinitely with no guarantee of coming back. Over the years on occasion, Sally and I will often, we've often uh, thought about just picking a place on the map, about packing up and, and, and starting out, launching out on a new adventure. But in, in, inevitably, we always come back to our roots. There's we come back to our community. We come back to our relationships. We come back to what we know and how difficult it would, it would be to leave all of these things behind. We come back to what's familiar because there's a significant cost involved in leaving the known for the unknown. Yet that is precisely what God asked of Abram here in Genesis 12. Everything you know, Abram, everything, leave it all behind and step into the complete unknown. It's not like buying a new house where you have the luxury of shopping for a neighborhood and then, and then uh, walking through the house and seeing how it fits your wish list. Not like that at all. It's not like stepping into a new job where even though the, the job may be somewhat unfamiliar, at least you know the, the role you've been hired to fill. I think, it's more like, I think it's more like getting on a plane with the understanding that you're not coming back and you have no idea where the pilot is going. 
That was God's call to Abram. How's that for a first impression? Because by the way, we have, we have no record that there was relationship between God and Abram before this call. In fact, in the, in the, in the uh, part of the world, the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia and Ur of the Chaldeans, was just rampant with idolatry. And yet here God looks out upon the human race and he chooses this man. And the call came with a promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I just want you to see the connection there, the so that. Like, I will bless you so that you will bless others. I mean, I think so often we want to be blessed and we want to hold on to all those blessings ourselves. And God is saying, I will bless you so that you become a vehicle of blessing to other people. I want the people in my life and the people in yours to look upon me and say, Wayne is a blessing to me because he's channeling, he's passing on the blessings God has bestowed upon him. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, to, to make this to make sure we don't miss this within the larger framework of the biblical story. Listen, God's plan to undo the wreckage of Genesis 3 through 11 begins in chapter 12 with the call of Abram. This is so like God. So unlike us. So unexpected. You can almost picture, speculate with me, daydream with me for a minute. You can almost picture the astonished looks on the angels' faces. You can almost hear their collective gasp when God announced that his plan to redeem humanity from the grip of sin came from, it involved this out-from-nowhere call of a 75-year-old man and his barren wife. Now, I'm not sure of the statistics regarding 75-year-olds having children for the first time, or any time, for that matter. But this was the man God chose to father a new nation and people group through whom he would bless all the peoples of the earth. Picture the angel's reaction when God said, hey, I've got this great plan to save the world, and it will be through that elderly, childless, child, that, that elderly, childless couple down there by multiplying their offspring. So let's just be very clear here. Sometimes God calls you to something that makes no sense at first. We want security. We want assurance. We want control, or at least the appearance of it. But it's been my experience that that's not how God's call works. At least not most of the time. When I look back over my life, whether it was my initial call to faith, to, 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 to trust Jesus, to entrust my life into, into the care of Jesus or the, or the call to my first missions trip as a young and, 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 and immature Christian or my call to ministry in the church or my call from one church to another, one city to another, or my call to be the youth director here at East Parkway, formerly Sierra Hills, or my call to the pastorate nearly 10 years after that, or how God is now calling me and my family into yet another unexpected direction, all of these things. I kid you not, every step of the way, it wasn't me stepping out and knocking down the door. It was God saying, I've got something for you. 
And it isn't easy. Is it? It isn't easy for you. It isn't easy for the church, but as, as Sal said so well, as we process this decision together, just as God is calling me away from East Parkway, so also is he calling someone to East Parkway, as we have seen. And as a fellowship of faith, you likewise are being called by God to step out from your church comforts, from the familiar and known, as you venture out into your unknown future by faith in God. Will you answer the call? Each step requires a letting go of control. Each step requires the conscious decision to embrace uncertainty. Each step requires faith because, as with my experience over the years, rarely are we given the, the luxury, the privilege of standing at the front end and having God reveal everything of the future at once. I don't know, my experience is usually He tells you the next step, and when you take that step, the next one will unfold in due time. But if you're a person who always looking to eliminate uncertainty from your life, if, you're, if your sense of security always depends on your ability to control the outcome, then you will miss that which only God can bring to you and then bring to others through you. There are moments in life, aren't there, when we just have to move from the shallow end of the pool to the other side where our feet can't touch bottom anymore. And if you're like me, sometimes we try to find that middle place. You know what I'm talking about? That middle place in the pool where you can stand on your tiptoes and you can still touch. But the life of faith means letting go of controlled environments and predictable outcomes as you launch out by faith in God. When we return to the basic biblical truths of life with God, at the ground level is the willingness to trust and obey Him even when it's counterintuitive. So Abram went. Verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord told him. Years came and went. Abram left his country and his kindred and his father's house. He did just as God said. He settled in the land of Canaan, but God's promise in chapter 12 that he would give that land to Abram's offspring likely by this time rang empty and hollow. Abram was now well into his 80s, and yet still he and Sarai remained childless. So as we come to chapter 15, and you can turn there with me, the Lord came to Abram yet again. God came with a promise to dissuade Abram's fear and to reassure his faith. So read with me, follow along uh, Genesis 15, the, verse, the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you're able to number them. 
And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, he believed the Lord. And he, God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know, there is a, there is a certain kind of pain I would say a very unique pain that comes with infertility. That only those who have endured it can understand. The brokenness, the emotional fatigue, the onset of self-doubt, and frankly, the doubts that begin to call into question everything you've ever believed about God. A fear that, that reaches down into your bones as you wonder if God still cares for you or if he's forgotten you entirely. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced that exact pain I know it too. Sal and I have walked that same road. And so did Abram and his wife Sarai. When God shows up in chapter 15, Abram is battling fear. He's battling doubt. And so God begins, fear not. To which Abram replies, but Lord, what will you give me in my childlessness? God, you promised children, but I have no children, not even one. And years have passed. In fact, God, as I stand before you today, my heir won't even come from my own line. What's up with all these promises you made? Now, we know how the story unfolds, don't we? We know about Abram's son, Isaac. We know about Abram's grandson, Jacob. We know about his great-grandson, Joseph. We know that the rest of Genesis is basically, it's the, it chronicles the lives of the patriarchs and how that sets the stage for all the books of the Bible that follow. We know that, but in some ways, that puts us at a disadvantage because knowing these things keeps us from truly understanding and empathizing with Abram and Sarai at this time. Put yourself in his shoes in that moment. He had obeyed God. He had trusted God. He'd waited on God. He did exactly what God said to the letter, but the promise God made to him years ago now seemed like a distant memory. Have you ever received a word from God, a promise only to realize that God's timing is not your own. That things aren't going as expected. Though you were once certain, suddenly uncertainty begins to plague you. Though you once had a vision of how it was supposed to be and when it was supposed to be, you wake up one day to realize that you can't even see clearly anymore. You don't know you can't see the plan, and you're not even sure if there is a plan anymore. How many of us can echo the words of David in Psalm 13 when he writes, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long, God, how long will you hide your face from me? God, how long must I take counsel in my soul? How long, God, how long will I have sorrow in my heart all day, every day? How do you respond when God's plan doesn't jive with yours? 
How does God respond? Look at how he responded to Abram. In verse 4 it says, The word of the Lord went to him. In other words, God met him where he was, not only where he was physically and spatially, but also God met Abram where he was emotionally. God met Abram where he was mentally. It doesn't say that God waited for Abram to get his thinking straight, to figure it out, or that he waited for Abram to come to him. It says God went to Abram. God moved toward Abram. Abram, which I find so reassuring to know that God moves toward me. God doesn't move away from me. God moves toward me even in my seasons of unbelief as I try to make sense of all of my doubt. God moves toward And we read that God took Abram outside the tent to see things from a different perspective, a different vantage point. And I think we need that too, don't we? How many times have you been so focused on your problems that all you can see is your problems? Like Abram, we tend to hyper-focus on the things of earth when what's needed is a renewed view of heaven. So when God showed Abram the starry night sky that day, it wasn't just about the stars or the number of them. It wasn't that, hey, Abram, I want you to count these stars. It was about the God who made the stars and called them by name. So after bringing his doubts to God and after God reassured him, of the promise. Abram's perspective began to change. God used what Abram could see to reassure him of what he couldn't. God uses what we know to make sense of what we don't. Like, isn't that the point of, of, of what Jesus did when he said to look to the sparrow and the flowers of the field? In other words, Jesus was saying, uh, you don't need to grow anxious or worried about food and clothing because when you seek God first, God who, who, who feeds the birds of the air and arrays the flowers in splendor, God will care for you too. God's using what we know to make sense of what we don't know. And after Abram, after this exercise with Abram, it says in verse 6 that Abram believed the Lord and that God counted Abram's belief as righteousness. Now, this theme of faith, this is a critical right here. This theme of faith being counted as righteousness is essential. It's an essential thread that weaves its way through the rest of the biblical narrative. In fact, Abram's response to God here and God's response to him becomes the basis of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Centuries later, the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Christians in Rome, points back to this very scene as proof that a person isn't made right with God by any amount of deeds or good works they've performed. It's not that. Rather, we are declared righteous by God simply when we believe Him and take Him at His word and live accordingly. Though our sins and the acts done in disbelief justly condemn us, God, who is rich in tender mercy and, and, and gracious beyond our wildest imagination and the epitome of love, God works on our behalf to provide a means of forgiveness and cleansing, a means of rescue, so that in Christ Jesus we can be right with God again but you must believe. You must trust God. You must entrust yourself to God, which means going the way of God. 
And that's the measure of true and saving faith. That's what Abram demonstrates here. When it says that Abram believed the Lord, it's more than merely agreeing to certain facts about the Lord. It's the difference between believing something intellectually and acting on that belief, between knowing someone factually and knowing that person personally. And to know God personally is to know his character, and knowing God's character is what builds trust. Though Abram believed God, he still had questions. And God was okay with that. More than okay, God went to to great extremes to convince Abram that he is trustworthy because sometimes our questions, hear this, sometimes our questions are what cause us to lean into the character of God more fully. In verse 7, God said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess, to which Abram answered, O Lord, how am I to know that I am to possess this? And what follows, what follows is one of the most remarkable demonstrations of God's trustworthiness in all of Scripture. God takes Abram. You can read this later on your own. It's verses 7 through 20. God takes Abram through an elaborate covenant ceremony. Now listen, this ceremony makes no sense to us in our day and time, but it made perfect sense to the people in that day and time. So, so God takes Abram through this elaborate covenant ceremony. He has him take a heifer and a female goat and a ram, each of, each of them three years old, as well as a turtle dove and a, and a young pigeon. And Abram was to cut the animals in half, with the exception of the birds, and then lay the two halves of the animal carcasses in two parallel lines with enough space to walk between them. Again, makes no sense to us, but very, very common in the day. Abram then fell asleep, and while he was sleeping, God spoke of Abram's descendants, how they would be sojourners in the land and captives to an oppressive nation. God was basically foretelling the Egyptian captivity and subsequent deliverance, but here's where it gets truly Remarkable. When the sun had set and the land was dark, listen, God himself passed between the animal carcasses that, that Abram had laid on the ground. He passed between them in the form of a smoking pot and a flaming torch, which again made perfect sense in that day and time. And the reason this is so remarkable because uh, in similar ceremonies in which covenants were made between stronger and weaker parties, it was the weaker party who would pass through the carcasses. As if to say, if I don't live up to my end of the bargain, may my limbs be torn, may I be torn limb from limb like these animals. In other words, God, though obviously the greater of the two parties here, right? God put himself in the position of the lesser as a demonstration of his absolute commitment to the covenant. God put himself on the line as a show of total trustworthiness. God was assuring Abram and us today that we, that, that, that we, that, that he will make good on all that he's promised. All that is promised in Scripture can be taken as, as gospel truth, as God's word, and he is good for it because to trust the promise is to trust the person behind the promise. Now, it may not come to pass exactly as we imagine or in the way we anticipate, but because God is trustworthy, it will be. And of that we can be sure. So as we turn to chapter 17, to the third scene in this morning's sermon. Are you okay? Are we okay? Two down, one to go. 
We turn to chapter 17, and Abram is now 99 years old. Hmm. 99 years old. 24 years have passed since his initial call from God. 10 to 15 years, roughly, have passed since God made covenant with him in chapter 15. Still, however, the child of promise had not arrived. And so God shows up once again to confirm the covenant and then to consecrate Abram. Let's read it portion of it at least Genesis 17 the first eight verses when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly then Abram fell on his face And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God confirms the covenant by changing, notice, by changing Abram's name to Abraham. From exalted father, that's what Abram means, to father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, God said. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you in the nations and kings shall come from you. Notice the plural form. Not a singular nation or a singular king, but many nations and many kings. Similarly, in verse 15, if you, if you look forward, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And the name means princess because royalty will come from her. Now, given the significance of a person's name and how the name becomes synonymous with that person's identity, the changing of their names here undoubtedly caught their attention. You can imagine, 99 years old, you've been known as Abram, and God shows up and says, not anymore, Abraham. It still seemed, I bet, so it still seemed to them to be so far out of reach. And who could blame them, really? You can understand why why Abraham, as we read later in verse 17, you can understand why he fell to the ground and began laughing, why he began saying to himself how impossible this all sounds, that he, at almost 100 years old, could father a child, and that Sarah, at 90 years old and barren, her entire life could conceive and carry and give birth to a child. They begin to laugh. (laughs) And even their laughter in those moments became a meaningful part of their story because the son to be born, the child for whom the covenant was established, was to be named Isaac. In Hebrew, Isaac means he laughs. Now, maybe Abraham and Sarah laughed at just the improbability of it all. 
almost like we would say, are you for real? Or maybe it's this place of laughter from pure joy that God was about to do what only God can do. Maybe it was a mix of both. Only God can do the impossible. And in fact, that's how the chapter began, right? This chapter 17. It begins with God declaring, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. We sang about it this morning. I am the all-powerful one. I am he, God says, for whom nothing is impossible. Listen, our problem today is not that we expect too much of God. It's that we expect too little. We tend to view God through the lens of human limitation. We look at some of the circumstances of our lives, some of the circumstances in our relationships, some of the circumstances surrounding our friends and certain members of our family, and we think impossible. Almost automatically, we assume that because circumstances appear bleak, it means that change is impossible. And if you don't believe me, just ask yourself, how many times have you, have you thought of someone you know? Someone you know who doesn't know the Lord and in fact seems light years away from God. And you think to yourself, it's no use. It's no use talking to them about Jesus or inviting them to church because the possibility of them coming to place their faith in Christ for salvation seems impossible to you in those moments. We tend to see through an impossible lens a lens of limitation. We do it in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, and even our places of worship. We look at our communities today. We look at society in general. We see we're engaged in this uh, societal conversation today about some very deep-seated issues that affect people very deeply, very personally. We hear all the, the words, we see all the images, and, and we see what's going on, and we think impossible. We tune out because we can't even imagine that something good can come from it. But with God... All things are, say it with me, possible. And so listen to me, church. If we believe that, wouldn't it make sense that Christians should be at the front of the line offering hope and faith and love? The front of the line. When we read our Bibles and we come to verses like Ephesians 3.20, write that down, check that out later today, which says to us that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even imagine according to the power at work within us, when we come across verses like that, believe it. I can't think, I can't help but think that whenever Abraham and Sarah spoke the name of their son Isaac, you know, he's growing up from, from conception to 
to infancy, to toddler, to he's a young boy and he grows up into a, a young man and then into adulthood, I just can't help but think that whenever they said the name, Isaac, that there was this little chuckle under their breath, this little laughter in their hearts at how God turned the impossible into reality. That's God's part. God does the miracle. Our part is just to respond in obedience and faith. And so God says to Abraham, he says, as for you in verse nine, which is his way of saying, this is God's way of saying, hey, listen, I'll do my part. Here's yours. Okay, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and all who follow after you, you must consecrate yourself to me. You, you, you must be set apart for me so that all will know that you are mine and that I am yours. And Abraham, here's how we're going to do that. We're going to do that through the sign of circumcision. Because my promise to you is an everlasting covenant through your line, every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, if I, were, if I was in Abraham's shoes at this moment, that would be a hard pill to swallow. As certainly the men in the room can understand. I would have, at a, very, at a very minimum, I would have at least asked for a longer conversation just to make sure we've exhausted all the options. And we won't get any sympathy from the women, right? Because they have the give birth card. And we know that when the give birth card is played, discussion over, they win. But I would have, there would have been this sense of, God, did I hear that correctly? Are, are you sure that's the way? Honestly, there would have been hesitation on my part. And amazingly, we're told that Abraham obeyed without hesitation. It's faith in action. Verse 23 says he did so. He obeyed that very day. So did all the men in his house. Uh, obviously, they didn't have the advancements of modern medicine. And so needless to say, the men were out of commission for a while, which, again, I'm sure the women took full advantage of in those moments, had some fun with one another. But circumcision was a seal it was a sign of being set apart by God for God. It was an indication of obedient submission to God and a commitment to one another as the people of God. I want you to see that. It's like it's this, there's two parts to it. It's my commitment to God and my commitment to my community. We're all in this together. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the founder of a new covenant. The Holy Spirit is the seal of saving faith today, just as baptism is today's version of circumcision. Water baptism is about identifying with Christ and other Christians who likewise trust and obey him. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a declaration of being set apart by God for God. Baptism is an expression of spirit-filled faith in Jesus and a, and a declaration of living into that identity daily. Baptism is very important. Very symbolic, very rich in meaning. And so as we come to close, and I know that we've been, I admit that we've been moving quickly through the story of Abraham 
from three different chapters, 12, 15, and 17. But as we come to close, I think we can relate with him, can't we? We can relate with his call. We can relate with the covenant, with how God gives us a new identity in Christ. We relate with his questions. We relate with his doubts. I think we can also relate with his laughter at the apparent impossibility of it all. I just pray. I pray for you in this room. I pray for those tuning in online. I just pray that you will also relate to his faith in God, to his obedience to God, to his desire and willingness and want to consecrate, to be consecrated to God. For just as God called Abraham into covenant relationships, so he calls and covenants with us in and through Christ. In Christ Jesus, we're told in Galatians 3, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Trumpet, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, which is why through him we can utter our amen. Amen? Amen. Thank you for being patient and long-suffering. God, I want to thank you for our time today. And I just pray, as we prayed at the beginning, I again just pray that these truths would be impressed upon us. Make us to be a people full of faith. Make us to be an obedient people. Make us to be a people who bring hope and faith and love. Make us to be people who receive your blessing, and we just want to pass it on. We just want to channel that blessing. We want to be conduits of blessing to our world. Do this for your namesake through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit within us.